Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 374. Be careful what you wish for. And it's been a while since we've talked about the members feed. And lately, Dr. Z and I have been working on a new series that just launched, and it's all about the early life of William the Conqueror. So, if you're curious about how a tiny little baby with, I assume, adorable little toes and big round cheeks that you just want to smush, ended up turning into the vicious mass-murdering colonizer you've all been clamoring for, well, the BHP has got you covered. And to be honest, while I'm not a fan of this guy, knowing where he came from and the environment that molded him helps make some sense of some of the things that are just around the corner in our main story. You should see me in a crowd. And the first episode on this miniseries is now live on the members feed. So if that sounds fun to you, you can get instant access to that episode and all the other members extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to David and his father James for signing up for membership and for making the show a part of your Father's Day celebration. Happy Father's Day. And happy Father's Day to all the dads who are listening. All right. This has been an absolutely crazy year. By which I mean 1055 had been an absolutely crazy year. But for the Godwinsons, it actually hadn't been all that bad. Having clearly given up on King Edward, Queen Edith was now fully on Team Godwinson and bending all of her political and diplomatic talents towards advancing her brother's positions. And since then, they had made significant advancements with large numbers of lands and titles coming under the family's control. In fact, by this point in history, the House of Godwin controlled all of the South. Leofwina was governing the area around London, his brother Gerth was governing East Anglia, and Harold was governing Wessex. To the north, governing over Northumbria, was also Tostig Godwinson. Moreover, in court, Queen Edith was taking an ever more influential role in politics, and her brother Harold, as the chief counselor to the king, would have been a powerhouse under any king, but under this one, Harold was beginning to act as a king in all but name. Honestly, the only significant place where the Godwins didn't have near supreme power was Mercia, which was governed by Earl Leofrich. But considering that Leofrich's son, Elfgar, had been dispossessed of his lands and then outlawed, and Earl Leofrich was apparently unable or unwilling to stop it, well, Mercia likely wasn't the power player in English politics that it once had been. By this point in the story, the House of Godwin had consolidated almost all of the power in the kingdom onto themselves, and only their youngest members were without important governmental positions. And those younger members were likely destined for religious duty. All, of course, except for poor Wolfnoth Godwinson, who was still being held as a hostage by Duke William of Normandy. But setting aside the imprisonment of their younger brother, virtually everything else that had happened recently had been an unmitigated success for the House of Godwin. Though maybe not for England. And Northumbria, in particular, was getting to know their new earl, and they weren't all that thrilled about him. And to be fair, Tostig did his best to reach out to his new subjects. He appointed a Northumbrian named Copsiga as his deputy, which was a smart move because, in addition to being a local, he was also an effective and competent administrator. 
So right from the start, Tostig was extending an olive branch and working to create a sort of continuity that would link his new government to the existing power structures within Northumbria. His wife, Judith of Flanders, was simultaneously patronizing the religious community at Durham and thereby making relationships with the local religious powers, which would have ingratiated the new noble couple with some of the most influential social leaders in the north. Tostig also put his efforts towards maintaining peace with Scotland, which, following the brutal war that left large numbers of the Northumbrian Ferd, including even the previous Earl's son, well, that was probably a popular policy decision. So Tostig, right from the start, made a lot of smart choices, which was wise because this region was notoriously hard to rule and infamously deadly to their rulers. So keeping your subjects happy, especially the ones closest to you, was necessary for anyone who wanted to hold the earldom of Northumbria and, you know, live to see 40. But therein lies the problem, because Tostig was aware of Northumbria's history and culture. And he had noticed the same thing that we've all noticed in this show. Northumbrian culture during this period was brutal. Their history, going back to at least the days of Athelfrith and Edwin, was one of backstabbing and murder for power. There are literally centuries of blood feuds and rebellions. And while Tostig was clever, he was also a taciturn man who was famous for ruthlessly enforcing justice and being absolutely merciless with evildoers. And for Tostig, rebellions and blood feuds definitely qualified as evildoing. This cutthroat culture was also a direct threat to his rule, and let's be real here, his life. So, taken all together, it should come as no surprise that Tostig decided to meet his new office culture head-on. Shortly after his arrival, it appears that he implemented some West Saxon laws. And we aren't told specifically what those laws were. We just start to see the record filling up with complaints about them. And based on those complaints, scholars suspect that the laws he most likely imported concerned blood feuds and violence. And, you know, this was Northumbria. So how much do you think that they appreciated some West Saxon dandy imposing his soft-handed West Saxon laws on them? Not a whole lot, judging from how angry these guys get in the record. And what's also apparent from the record is that, try as he might, Tostig's temperament meant that he had a hard time making friends. Even scribes who are friendly to the House of Godwin describe him as a severe man. Especially when it came to justice. And he really believed in justice. No exceptions. And this sense of integrity was on an immediate collision course with Northumbrian rule. Because the culture that propelled Northumbrian blood feuds was a central tradition of the upper classes. I mean, I guess it's also possible that Unferth might have been beefing with Burtnoth over who gets to use the upper Midwest pasture for the milk cow, but when we read about blood feuds and intergenerational murder, what we're reading about are wealthy people. And that makes sense, right? Is Unferth's grandson really going to care so much about a cow that he's willing to kill Burtnoth's grandson? Probably not. But if what's at stake isn't a cow, but is instead the entire earldom of Northumbria, well, that changes the calculation. Which means that Tostig's attention on blood feuds and violence 
meant that his focus on justice was directed at the very group who was used to getting a free pass when it came to law and order, the ruling classes. And what made Tostig unique, and honestly straight up weird in comparison with many of his contemporaries, is that he didn't seem to care if someone was influential, or wealthy, or even titled. From what I can tell, he believed that the law should still apply to everyone, which is hard to argue against in principle. However, the trouble there is that the wealthy people are influential, and now, rather than sticking their knives in each other in their uncontrolled lust for power and money, all those knives were now starting to be pointed towards a common obstacle. Tostig. So things in Northumbria, right from the start, were getting tense. Meanwhile, to the south, another Godwinson was starting to face some headwinds. Harold Godwinson, Earl of Wessex and Chief Counselor of England, was leading a massive army. And their purpose was simple. They were going to march to Wales and deal with King Gruffith and his Mercian pet, Elfgar. And this army really was gargantuan. Version C of the Chronicle tells us that the soldiers were drawn, quote, from very nearly all over England, end quote. Now, at this point in English history, experts have estimated that England could probably have mustered about 14,000 soldiers from the Ferd, you know, if everyone showed up at the same time. Now, given the nature of the kingdom and its needs, it's doubtful that Harold would have had the full complement of soldiers in his army. But even if he had a fraction of them, we're still talking about a very large military campaign. And here's the thing. We're told that King Gruffith, after the sacking of Hereford, took his spoils and he returned to his own lands. Now, given the shifting nature of borders during this period and how many of the borders were hotly contested, we can't say for certain precisely where Gruffith went or at which point he was officially back in his own territory. But we can be certain that as Harold and the English army marched west and headed to Hereford, they didn't face any resistance. Nor did Harold need to engage in battle to remove the Welsh from Hereford, because they weren't there. So Harold pressed on towards the Welsh lands, going beyond the valley and eventually establishing his camp in the Vale of Ewias, now in modern-day Monmouthshire in Wales. And the bulk of his army was stationed there, no doubt in order to keep watch for any follow-up attacks from King Gruffith, and to hopefully deter them should the King of Wales be considering a second campaign. And once everyone was settled in, Harold raced back to Hereford. The town was terribly exposed, especially after King Gruffith and the Welsh army laid waste to the town's defenses. So one of Harold's biggest concerns was ensuring that Hereford would have some degree of suitable fortification should this conflict continue. So he began to oversee the emergency construction and repair of the town's walls, gates, and other defensive structures. It's possible he was also hoping that, by leaving his army in the Vale, and thus providing a hindrance to any follow-up attack, he'd be able to use time to his advantage. Because, as we discussed in an earlier episode, some later Welsh laws suggest that mustering was a complex business for Welsh kings. And for a campaign of this nature... Gruffith very likely only had the authority to conscript soldiers for about six weeks. But even if that law wasn't yet in place, 
there were still earlier laws that required the king to provide food and supplies for the army should a campaign last longer than three days. And this had definitely lasted longer than three days. We don't know when King Gruffith first mustered his soldiers, but Elfgar had been exiled in March. And then he gathered his Viking fleet from Ireland and joined up with King Gruffith. And then Gruffith campaigned against a Hybarth, killed their king, marched up into England along the River Wye, destroyed the English defenses that he encountered along the way, then destroyed the English fur that was defending Hereford, and then he sacked Hereford on October 24th before returning home. So this was a long, long campaign. I mean, just the march along the River Wye to Hereford would have taken two or three days. I mean, maybe he could have done it in one day, but if he did, everyone would have been knackered by the time they arrived. So I seriously doubt it. Furthermore, the campaign didn't end at Hereford. Given the English response, it's quite likely that King Gruffith was doing all he could to keep his soldiers with him, even after the sack of Hereford. And mustering was something that took time, which means that the campaign would have continued as Harold was gathering forces from all over England and then bringing them to Herefordshire. So even if we assume this whole thing went at a breakneck pace, it was still a campaign that would probably stretch now from weeks into months. Adding to the problem, you'll recall that Gruffith's army was huge, about half the size of the mammoth army that William the Conqueror would later field in England. So even if the six-week rule hadn't yet been put into place, and he only had the you-gotta-feed-everyone rule, the fact was that feeding that many men for this long would have been getting super expensive. And if Harold knew this, and it's entirely possible that he did, since the Welsh and the English were in regular contact, well then, he might have been trying to run out the clock. It's entirely plausible, and honestly, strategically sound. King Gruffith was a formidable opponent, and direct conflict with him was quite dangerous even with the support of the Ferdman from all over England. But if Gruffith's army evaporated because their term of service was up, or if the food ran out, well, that might give Harold the advantage he needed. The trouble, though, was that King Gruffith was fresh off a of victory and popular. And according to the Welsh sources, following his recent successes, he was seen by all as eminently worthy. And so it appears that morale in his army was pretty high, and he wasn't facing any cohesion issues. King Gruffith's army appears to have been quite content to see this thing through to the end. And that was bad news, because while the Chronicle boasts that Harold had a large army, so did Gruffith. And Gruffith's army was also experienced, victorious, and apparently eager. A direct conflict with that force was risky. But Harold could only attempt to run out the clock for so long, because the Ferd, just like the Welsh army, had limits on their terms of service. And if this thing kept going, then it might be Harold who woke up to find large numbers of his army packing their bags and heading home. Especially since it was probably November or December by this point. So it was a little cold to be camping. And no one was probably eager to miss Christmas. So eventually, terms were reached between Harold and Gruffith. And given the nature of the terms, it seems pretty clear who had the upper hand here. The two sides met at Billingsley. 
And for people looking at maps, this isn't the same Billingsley as what exists today. 11th century Billingsley was in Arkenfield and overlooked the River Wye in Hereford. And this location is interesting because leaders of this era would typically meet at borderlands between their territories when they were trying to strike a treaty. And as you might recall, Arkenfield was contested land and was occupied by individuals that appear to have culturally identified with the Welsh. Which means that when we think about this conflict and the borders it involved, we might need to move them a bit east from where we might have first imagined they were. Now, alternatively, this location might reflect Gruffith's ambition to extend the borders of Wales and recapture some of the lands that the West believed were wrongly annexed by the English. And in that case, it could indicate that Harold was ceding land to the Welsh king, or at least symbolically affirming the Welsh king's claim. But any way you slice it, this location wasn't picked by accident. And then you have the terms. And there's something else. Now, as you might recall, King Gruffith and the Army of Wales sacked Hereford, killed a bunch of people, captured a bunch of others, and then stole everyone's stuff. And considering that Harold had brought soldiers from nearly all of England, you'd expect that one of their demands would be to return their people and their stuff. But that doesn't appear in the record. Gruffith and the Army of Wales seem to have been allowed to keep everything. Furthermore, there's no indication that guilds or any other sort of payment or tribute would be expected in recompense for the damage and the slaughter. Instead, we're told that Elfgar, the exiled Earl who had orchestrated much of this mess, would be immediately restored to his earldom and have all rights and privileges returned. Furthermore, the Diocese of Hereford was required to cede control over the territory of Erging and give it to the Welsh Diocese of Glamorgan. And we do see later records indicating that the Bishop of Flandaff was no longer subject to the Diocese of Hereford. And King Edward actually appears in some of those records, which suggests that the crown was on board with the sea being transferred to Welsh control. And that is super interesting, because Erging includes Arkenfield, and this territory was being hashed out at Billingsley, which was on the border of Arkenfield. Which makes me think that Harold's attempt at playing hardball had failed, and King Gruffith didn't just get to keep all his spoils of war, he also got the English crown to return some land that Gruffith and the Welsh had claimed to. It's genuinely hard to look at what happened here as anything less than an unqualified success for King Gruffith and an absolute disaster for Earl Harold and England. And you might be wondering what Elfgar's Viking army got out of the deal. I mean, everybody else was getting paid. Well, apparently they didn't get anything at Billingsley. Instead, we're told that they got into their ships, sailed down the Wye, went round the coast of Wales, and landed at Chester, where they awaited the payment that Earl Elfgar had promised them. So my assumption here is that Elfgar basically told them, just go over to Chester and my dad will sort it out for you. He's the Earl of Mercia and he's rich. Just tell him I sent you. Anyway, I gotta go see the king. And following the conclusion of the treaty, Earl Elfgar immediately rode to meet with King Edward so he could be formally restored to his position. Which, of course, meant that East Anglia 
was yanked from Gerth Godwinson and given back to Elfgar. So, pretty bad day for the Godwinsons, all things considered. And a few months later, Bishop Athelstan of Hereford died. And Earl Harold appointed his own chaplain, Leofgar, as the new Bishop of Hereford. And new Bishop Leofgar was not happy about what happened at Billingsley. It was outrageous that the King and Earl Harold had ceded so much to this Welshman. And in particular, he wanted his lands back. He was the Bishop of Hereford now. And as far as he was concerned, that should include Erging. And if the king wasn't going to do anything about it, then he would. So Bishop Leofgar started gathering supporters. Some priests here, some parishioners there. And when he won over the Shire Reeve, Elfnoth, he was off to the races. And by summer of that year, 1056, he had enough men to take the fight to this godless King Gruffith. And the Chronicle makes it quite clear that Leofgar was the aggressor. It tells us, quote, he gave up his chisholm and his cross and took his spear and his sword after his consecration as bishop and so went campaigning against Gruffith, the Welsh king, end quote. F turning the other cheek, f the peacemakers, I'm here to cast a motherfucking stone. And this might have been the plan all along. Harold would have known the character of his own chaplain. And Leofgar wasn't exactly subtle about it. In fact, after he became bishop, he retained a giant mustache, which was a grooming choice associated with soldiers, not priests. And sure enough, Bishop Leofgar was acting like a soldier. He led his army across the border into Welsh lands and soon approached Glasbury. Now, according to Walter Mapp, this area, and especially the nearby lake at Flangors, had a long history of being an administrative and political center for the Welsh people in the region. In particular, Walter tells us that it was the site of the royal court of Brecheniog. And that made it a logical target for Bishop Leofgar, as this was likely a major administrative and logistical hub for King Gruffith and his army. And I presume that Leofgar was hoping that the Welsh army, no longer being bolstered by the Viking mercenaries out of Dublin, and also likely chafing at how long they'd been conscripted, would be a pale reflection of the force that had sacked Hereford. The trouble for this bishop turned general was that while he liked to style himself as a military commander and soldier, his experience and training in those areas was debatable. And King Gruffith's experience and training was undeniable. And the same could be said for his men. According to the accounts of this battle, King Gruffith quickly and easily defeated the invading English force and killed Bishop Leofgar and all his priests and the Shire Reeve Elfnoth and many of his men and many others too. And then in short order, the whole English army was put to flight. The way the scribes speak of this battle, it doesn't even really sound like a battle. The Welsh dominance was absolutely overwhelming. And the hits just kept coming for the English. This was going so badly that the scribes of the Chronicles sound like they're processing trauma. Quote, It is hard to describe the oppression and all the expeditions and the campaigning and the labors and the loss of men and horses that 
all the army of England suffered. End quote. And while our records are scant, it seems quite clear that this conflict was significantly larger and more brutal than the two short campaigns were told about. The records suggest that there were actually a great deal more campaigns and battles that were left out of the accounts, and it was bleeding the English army dry. And we're told that the losses and bloodshed continued until Earl Leofrich, Earl Harold Godwinson, and Bishop Eldred were personally sent to the region to sue for peace with King Gruffith. Now, King Edward's choice of these three men for such an important task is, to be honest, a bit baffling. It was only a few months earlier that Harold Godwinson was forced to back his army down and agree to welcome Elfgar back to England and cede religious control of Erging. So it wasn't like he had a lot of success negotiating with King Gruffith. Earl Leofrich of Mercia, similarly, was a bizarre choice, as it was his son, Elfgar, who had allied himself with Gruffith and had participated in the sacking of Hereford. And while Bishop Eldred did have some experience in diplomacy, he'd only recently returned to the country, having spent quite a long time overseas. So the king was kind of just throwing him straight into the fire with this one. And I suspect that the only reason he was there was because he was tasked with administrating the Diocese of Hereford when Bishop Leofgar was killed during that whole blaze of glory thing. So this trio makes for an odd diplomatic envoy. And I suspect that whatever happened next didn't go all that well. Because the scribes of the Chronicle, after lamenting how awful this war had been, suddenly get really tight-lipped about the peace negotiations and the terms. All they'll tell us is that King Gruffith, quote, swore oaths that he would be a loyal and faithful underking to King Edward, end quote. And a bare reading of that gives the impression that the English were victorious, and now Edward was boss king. And I'm sure that was the impression the scribes wanted to give. But a look at other records, and also a look at the political realities of the situation, paints a very different picture. King Gruffith had laid waste to England's southwestern defenses. He had crushed the armies that had been sent against him, and he'd sacked at least one English town without suffering any repercussions. That doesn't sound like the kind of thing that would lead someone to being forced to become a loyal underking. And I think that's because he wasn't. King Gruffith wasn't forced to attend English court, which we would expect if he was a dominated underking. Furthermore, Wales wasn't required to provide any military forces to England, which was also something that we would have expected to see if he was an underking. So this all looks like wishful thinking to me, or maybe an attempt to save face by slapping a label on King Gruffith and hoping no one noticed that it wasn't accompanied by any of the requirements, and certainly hoping that no one noticed what else happened during these negotiations. Because Gruffith and Glamorgan weren't required to give up Erging, nor was he required to return any captives, nor any booty. We aren't told of any tributes or ware guilds or restitution. And while we are told about lands that had to be returned, that only went one way. King Edward ceded all lands beyond the River Dee to King Gruffith. 
and a look at the Doomsday Book shows that Gruffith controlled all the lands between the River Dee and the River Cluid, with the exception of a small strip along the Dee estuary. England, through its negotiators, did attain peace with King Gruffith. But a look at the contemporary records, as well as the Doomsday Book, Walter Mapp, and other later accounts, it seems quite clear that England had to pay handsomely for the truce. And as for King Gruffith, he returned home in peace as the first king of all of Wales. And his lands now extended into territories that, since the time of office Dyke, had been held by the English. Thus, he had brought the borders of his kingdom quite close to their modern locations. He had brought Wales back home to the Welsh. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Reddit, and you can find links to the Reddit community and all our other communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.